0: God, our Father, Lord, we are grateful for your love and your kindness to us. We thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. We thank you for your glorious gospel, which is your power unto salvation. God, you've saved us. You've saved us from sin and from death, and we praise you. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place with your holy family. We ask that you would give us insight into your word, help us to grow both in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus as we study your word today. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so last week we were in an ongoing uh, talking about the topic of the lordship of Christ and the lordship controversy. And um, we came to know that the summons to repentance is a call to obedience, so that it really is a mandate in the gospel that we obey Christ. And it's not that our obedience actually merits God's favor, since we've already disobeyed God and fallen out of favor with Him. Amen? Amen. However, what is being called for in the gospel is a true heart commitment. And so with that true heart commitment, we should see a sincere, repentant desire to turn from sin and to do what is right. Amen? And so we we simply call that gospel obedience. Amen? Amen? And what it means is, is to conform your life to the teaching of Christ and obey what he's taught us to to do. And of course, that takes the form not just of repenting of sins of omission, but also repenting of sins of commission. Right? Are you with me? So, we are to then obey the things that he's told us to do. Right? And we are to... Um, obey the things that he's told us not to do. Are you with me? So that we don't uh, omit certain sins and that we don't commit certain sins. Amen? And that's what repentance looks like. (laughs) Repentance is a turning away from sin and an embracing of Christ. And so in the gospel, when we come to Christ, we receive the Lord of heaven and earth. And he is our master, he is our king, he is our sovereign, he's our authority. Amen? Amen. And so you cannot divorce this element of Christian life from the gospel. When Christ calls us to follow him, he calls us to walk in his footsteps and do what he does and go where he goes and say what he says and think what he thinks. Amen. Which means we're we're by by nature of the faith we are conforming our life to Christ, which means we're obeying Him. We're obeying His teacher, teaching. Okay, And so, um, not only is there a controversy about this, but we've seen very clearly that Jesus is Lord. And we've seen very clearly that the summons to repentance is really a call to obedience. Amen? Okay, so with that, today we're going to talk about the nature of saving faith. The nature of saving faith. And here's where we hope to clarify the distinctions between justification by faith alone and the role of works in salvation. Okay? So, if you will, works do play a role in salvation. However, they don't save us. They're simply the product of what true saving faith is. That's the easiest way to boil it down for you, okay? Because there isn't any work that you can do to save yourself from sin and death. Amen? Amen. Only Christ can do that. So when we talk about being justified before God, we 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 look to the work of the the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is his merit that has justified us before God. Amen. However, The conduit by which we receive Christ's life and his death is what we call faith. And faith in and of itself has this quality. It's obedient to God. It bears fruit. It produces a transformed life. So that if you have the real kind of faith that the Bible points to, okay, then we should see that evident in your life through love for God and obedience to His Word. Amen? That right there, family, is the whole story between the role of faith and works. Okay? But we'll talk about it in detail here. So, let's talk about the nature of, of saving faith. I use these terms, saving faith, because there is a kind of faith that doesn't save. And of that kind of faith, the Bible has much to say. Okay, as I'm going to show you this morning, even in the teaching of Jesus, Jesus pounds this message home again and again and again and again and again in his teaching and um, he's th- they're always laboring to show us the difference between true faith and false faith or true faith and mere profession. okay I'm going to be using that term a lot. mere profession. Somebody tell me. What do we mean by mere profession? You got lips but no heart. (laughs) Okay. So you You talk the the talk, but you don't walk the walk. Right? You acknowledge that Christ lived, and you acknowledge that maybe He even died on the cross for sin. Mm -hmm. He might even go that far. But But there's no life that shows. There's no evidence of that belief. Okay, so there's a profession with the mouth of faith... Right? But we call it a mere profession. Why? Because it's profession only. Right? It's profession only, and it's not real. Okay? So when we're a mere professor, we say we're a Christian, but in fact we deny Christ with our actions. Amen? Or should I say we deny Christ in thought, word, and deed. Regularly. In a continual pattern. Okay? That's a mere professor. That is also what the Bible calls an apostate. And an apostate has done what we call apostasy. Okay? So if you will, we'll talk more about that. But these things are clear in the scripture. Okay? So the Bible doesn't just say, well, here's what true faith is, and only gives us that. But... Jesus and the apostles labor to tell us what false faith looks like. Okay, I want to show you that clearly in the scripture. So then, the nature of true saving faith is a major theme in the teaching of both Jesus and the apostles. They are frequently laboring to be sure that we are aware of the nature of saving faith so that we can be sure we possess it and not some mere profession or apostate form of faith. This can be seen in many different allegories and forms of expression in the New Testament. Now, I want you to bear in mind the main topic of our lesson here. Somebody tell me what it is. The more ultimate topic here. The Lordship of Christ. Okay, we're talking about the Lordship of Christ. And we've made... We've made several um, uh, issues and points here. One is, there's a big controversy about this in the evangelical church, okay? Number two, Jesus is Lord, amen? And number three, the summons to repentance in the gospel is a call to obedience, okay? So now what we're talking about is, see, we've looked at repentance. Now we're going to talk about faith, okay? Okay? The two are very, very closely tied together. But we're going to talk about faith and how it relates to the Lordship of Christ. Okay, I want you to bear that in mind. That's why I stopped here. I want you to bear in mind we're talking about the Lordship of Christ. And we're talking about what true faith looks like when someone has come to Christ and truly become a Christian and been born again. Okay? Everybody with me? Okay. Okay, so then. Here are a few clear examples of these forms of the nature of true faith. Now, remember how I've told you the gospel takes many forms, right? Well, <clears throat> it's almost like when Jesus explains the gospel, he never stops and says, okay, now I'm going to explain the gospel to you. <coughs> right? He, he rarely does anything like that. He, what he'll do is he'll just come with one analogy, one form, one expression of the gospel after another. Okay, And many times it's intertwined just maybe the whole nature of the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's focusing on faith. Sometimes he's focusing on various other things. But the point is, he comes across with many different forms and expressions of the kingdom and of the gospel. Are you with me? Okay. And so, <clears throat> if you will, here's a few. Here's a few ways that Jesus has forms and expressions of the nature of true faith. Okay. Jesus calls us to a master-slave relationship of lifelong perseverance and service. Jesus calls us to be born again and to be recreated by God through faith. Jesus calls us to bear fruit and produce the marks of true faith. Jesus calls us to humility, brokenness, and to deny self-reliance. Jesus calls us to lose our life to follow Him. And Jesus calls us to love Him supremely above all other things and worship Him. Okay? Now, this isn't an exhaustive list, family. This is just a few things I picked out to show us these forms and expressions of true faith In in the teaching of Jesus, okay. Now, right, here we're focusing pretty much explicitly on the teaching of Jesus, although we might look at a few things that the apostles have said in regard to these things. So, when Jesus and the apostles teach us about the faith, they frequently use allegory of a master and slave. And so Jesus would come across, and he he's he's talking to us rather frequently about the fact that he's our master and we're a slave. And or or if you will, we're a servant or a bond servant, okay, which is effectively a slave in his day. Jesus tells us parables of how true faith is demonstrated by faithful obedience of a good slave. Paul tells us that we are slaves of righteousness, and so here, if you will, um, Matthew 20 verses 26. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here Jesus talks about how to be great in the kingdom of God. How do you do that? You become the servant of all. That's what he teaches. You become a slave a slave whose master is Christ. Luke twelve thirty seven and then 42 through 43. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve, and have them recline at the table, and will come up and wait on them. Okay, now Jesus is teaching us a parable. And in this parable, he's he's drawing an allegory. He's drawing an example. It's a form or an expression of the gospel and the nature of the kingdom. And in this allegory, Jesus is the master, and the slave is the servant who's serving him, right? And here he says, um, he says, "Blessed are those slaves whose master finds them on the alert." So he's talking about these slaves are ready. They're alert. They're paying attention, right? Well, look what he goes on, and he draws a contrast between the blessed slave and the evil slave. Right, Verse 42, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Here Jesus is pointing out the the virtues of the good slave. Forgive me there. He's pointing out the virtues of the good slave. But in this parable, in various places, he also teaches the contrast of the evil slave, right? And uh, we'll talk about that here in a minute. But the point is just that he uses this analogy on a regular and frequent basis of a master and a slave. Paul would even, he uses this whole contrast in Romans 6 of this very thing. He says in Romans 6, verses 17 and 18, but thanks be to God that... Though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You see what Paul says? He says that we were, look at this, obedient from the heart. Now that's an expression of true repentance. Amen? And what does it look like? Obedience. What kind of obedience? Obedience that inside of its heart is genuine and real. Right? And here he says that we were freed from sin. He says we were slaves of sin, but we've been freed from sin. And having been freed from sin, we became what? Slaves of righteousness, he says. Okay? Well, how can that be? Well... (laughs) You see, we were in our slavery, and somebody came along and paid a ransom to buy us out of that slavery. And when that happened, we became the property of the one who bought us. Are you with me? That's a very real first century analogy. Are you with me? When you bought a slave, you owned that slave as property. Amen? This is the analogy that's drawn from Jesus and from Paul. They teach that true saving faith is brought about by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and call us to be born again. Okay, so we're talking about the fact that one form or expression of the gospel is the master-slave relationship. Well, what does that that say about the lordship of Christ? Well, it says that when we come to Christ, he's the master, we're the slave. Okay, so what does that say about the nature of our relationship to him? We're in submission to his authority. We're to obey his commandments. We're to carry out his directives. Amen? He says in one place, you are to say to yourselves, after all, we're but unworthy slaves. Amen? Well, so then there's this uh, another form or expression is the idea of being born again, being recreated by God. And so Jesus would say in John 3, 3, To Nicodemus, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or Paul would say to us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, if any man is in reality in Christ, he is what? A new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. You see, when somebody's really in Christ, they've been born again. They've been recreated by God. They are the new creation of God. We call that regeneration. Amen? And so that's why there's a true faith in, true faith in a false faith. That's why there's a true faith in a mere profession. Because a mere professor is not what? Born again. They haven't been born again by the Spirit of God. Okay? And so they are not in reality a new creation of God. And therefore don't produce the products of a new creation. They don't bear the fruit of a new creation. And they don't surrender like a true slave. Are you with me? Okay, so then. This regeneration is a fundamental change in the nature of man. And is a work that only God can do. Because salvation is the work of God in regeneration... And the believer has been given a new nature and is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The believer therefore desires to please God and to keep his commandments. Now listen to what we're saying. Regeneration is something that God does and it changes the fundamental nature of man. So much so that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside the being of man. Okay. And so that when that happens, okay, this is something that changes the heart of man, so that now he no longer desires and hungers for sin and for wickedness. Instead, the deepest longings of his heart are for righteousness and truth and holiness and God. Amen. And so that's why Paul could say that we were obedient from the heart, right? Because God changed our heart. And remember, this is something God does, not something man does. Amen? Which implies perfection. Are you with me? When God does something, He does it perfectly. Amen? And, and so, if you will... When God recreates us, he puts his very nature in us, okay? And that nature is going to bear forth fruit. It's going to bear forth the very nature of God himself. But the the essential thing is, it changes the very desires of the human heart. So that now we're being changed from the inside out. We're not conforming our actions on the outside and then God sees us and says, Oh, well, now, he look, he changed his heart. He's being a good boy. I guess I'll give him salvation now. Are you with me? That's not how it happens, family. Here's how it happens, okay? Jesus says you must be born again, he's telling Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, right? Unless he's born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus scratches his head. He says, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? Right? Jesus says, it's like the wind. You can't see where it's coming from and you can't see where it's going. It's a work of the Spirit of God. It's a spiritual work of the Spirit of God. Right? And so what can you see? Well, you can see the leaves rustling when the wind blows by. Are you with me? So it is with those who are born again. When someone gets born again, it produces fruit. It produces actions. It produces a heart change and a transformed life. Are you with me? But remember, this regeneration is the work of God in salvation. It is the chief goal of one who worships and esteems God to live a life which imitates God and conforms to his character. So now that the Holy Spirit has come in and recreated us and given us the nature of God, now we desire what's right and we desire what's true and we desire what's holy and pleasing to God. Amen. And because we have that desire churning in us, what do you suppose happens to our life? Well, we start hating sin, right? And we start turning away from sin and hating things that tend towards sin and death. And we start loving things that tend toward life and tend toward holiness and tend toward righteousness and tend toward truth. And we turn away from lies and falsehood and we pursue the truth. Amen? And everybody that's been born again has a hunger for truth. Amen? How many of you have a hunger for truth? Right? I know you do. You're all in here on the edge of your chair. Saying, come on, man. Deal out the nuggets. Right? I mean, that's the, that's, that's the drive of our life now. We're hungry for righteousness and for truth. Amen? That's because God's changed our hearts. And so now we long to be like Christ. Here's the confession of every true Christian. Lord, I want to be like Jesus. God, I want to be like Jesus. Inside my heart, I want to be like Jesus. Amen? Amen. If you don't have that longing in your heart, family, you need to go back to the cross and get saved. Because that's something God does to you. He transforms your heart so that your deepest and strongest desire is for righteousness and holiness of the truth. Amen? Amen? Okay. This is reverberated throughout the scripture with exhortations and commands which continually call us to become like Christ in our character and behavior. For instance, Ephesians 5, 1. There Paul writes and he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And so here... Like many places, Paul is, is calling us to be an imitator of God. Well, what does he mean? He means to conform your thoughts, your words, and your deeds to God. Do what God does. Go where God goes. Say what God says. Think what God thinks. Be an imitator of God. Amen? That's what we're called to. Now, how does that relate to the lordship of Christ? Well, we're called to Obedience. We're called, we're, we're called to imitate God. Is that a call to obedience? Yeah. Is that a call to put off sin and put on righteousness? Is that a call to put off the old man and put on the new man? It absolutely is. You see, obedience is a gospel mandate. Because what the gospel is calling us to is faith. And true saving faith is characterized by obedience. Amen. Okay, 1 Peter 1, 15, Peter says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And so now the Christian has a whole new drive. He has a whole new focus in his life, right? What's he after now? Holiness. He wants to be like God. He wants to be set apart from the world of sin. He wants to be holy like God is holy, without sin. Amen? Every true Christian hates sin. Amen? That's what we were saved from. You agree, every true Christian is saved? (laughs) Right? Well, that's what it means, right? To be a Christian is to be saved, right? Saved from what? Sin and death. Right? So we're saved out of that thing and we abhor it. It was a cruel master. Amen? Bricks without straw. Build my kingdom. Bricks without straw. You worthless slaves. Right? Sin is a cruel master. Cruel, cruel master. We were saved out of that. We hate it. Amen? Now we've been brought out by a strong arm. Amen? Because the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. This is also shown in the allegory of a fruit-bearing vine or tree. Okay, here's another expression of the Gospel or the nature of true faith in the teaching of Jesus. This expression of true saving faith is frequently shown by Jesus and the apostles. When this is shown, there is a contrast given between those true believers who do bear fruit and by it prove the reality of faith, and those mere professors who do not and are destroyed. Now hear what I'm saying. When this... Form or expression is used by Jesus and the apostles of a fruit-bearing vine or tree. It's usually accompanied by a contrast between those who are producing fruit and those who are not producing fruit. And those who produce fruit, which is the desired uh, thing of the gardener, right? And those who do not produce fruit, who are, the scripture says, gathered up and burned in the fire. Are you with me? And so there's this contrast. And so here's what I want you to see. The nature of true faith is set in contrast in the scriptures, so that it's saying this is what true faith looks like and this is what false faith looks like. This is what true faith looks like and this is what mere profession looks like. So then, um, when this is shown, there is a contrast given between those true believers who do bear fruit and by it prove the reality of faith, and those mere professors who do not and are destroyed. In these examples of fruit bearing, Jesus and the apostles are laboring to show the marks or evidence of true saving faith so that we can discern the difference between saving faith and mere profession. For instance, Jesus teaching about the true vine in John 15, verses 5-7, through he says, I am the vine... You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them up and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. And so here the point is is that Jesus is drawing this contrast. He's saying, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And if, and if you're really attached to me, he's saying you will what? You will bear much fruit. Not you might bear much fruit. Right? You will. You will bear much fruit. And then he gives the contrast. And look what he says. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, Right? He is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Okay? And so here's the deal. There's two kinds of people in the world. Okay? Those who abide in Christ and bear much fruit and those who do not abide in Christ and they dry up and wither. They're thrown out, gathered up and burned in the fire. You with me? It couldn't be any more clear than it is right here in this passage. Okay? And so why would Jesus tell his disciples this? Right? Well, he's speaking specifically to the disciples. And he's saying to them, If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. He's calling them to examine the reality of their own faith. And he's telling them what it looks like. Of course, he goes on in the parable and and, and makes it very clear, right? This is something they do because they're attached to him. And furthermore, when they bear fruit, they glorify God. These kinds of things he's telling them, right? But the point is just that here he is pointing to them and speaking to them very clearly about the reality of their own faith. If it really exists, if they really do abide in him, right, they will bear much fruit, okay? And, of course, we could uh, draw from the teaching of Paul to know what that fruit looks like, couldn't we? Right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Amen? Okay, so then, how about in Matthew 7, verses 16 and following? You will know them by their fruits. He's giving us a very clear teaching. He's saying, look, bad trees don't make good fruit, <coughs> right? And good trees don't make bad fruit, right? He's drawing a contrast, right? And he's here in this case, he's, t- he's talking to the disciples about how to discern a false teacher from, from a, yeah, he says, they come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing, Right? He says, but you'll know them by their fruits. You'll be able to discern in the life of a teacher whether or not that teacher is of God. Because if he's a good tree, he's going to bear good fruit. And if he's a bad tree, he's going to bear bad fruit. Right? Because this is the nature of the way things are. Right? Good trees don't bear bad fruit. And bad trees don't bear good fruit. Right? So he's saying, you look at the product. And there you have discernment whether or not faith is real, whether or not faith is genuine. Amen? Amen. Another analogy employed by Jesus and the apostles to show true faith is that of self-denial, humility, and brokenness. We are to mourn and weep over our sin and self-reliance, for no one has the power in and of themselves to please God. Now, I want you to think about this. I'm using this term, self-reliance, okay, because, you know, this is the sin nature of every man and woman, right? We rely upon ourselves because we think, ignorantly, right, that... We have the ability and the power to save ourselves, to fix our problems, right? To do our own thing, to be the captain of our own ship. Why do we need a Lord, (laughs) right? Why I can captain my own ship, can't I? Right? Well, we know what happened when I ran my ship, right? It was just about dashed on the rocks. Lest Christ come and save me. Saved me from what? Being the captain of my own ship. Relying on myself to fix my problems. Why, it was me that was digging the hole. The whole time I was digging the hole. Amen? Never realizing I was even digging a hole. But Jesus saved me. He saved me from the pit that I was digging. Amen? Amen? And so, I don't rely on me anymore. Now I rely on Him. Amen? And this is what faith is. Faith is a reliance upon Christ. So, let's talk about, for instance, our, our relationship to God the Father. Can I, with my merits, go before a holy God and stand in His presence at the judgment? No. no. Can I rely on my own works to be justified before God? No. No, what will they get me? Wrath and hell and death. Amen? Right? But if I rely on the merits of Christ when I stand before God, what shall happen? I shall be justified before a holy God. And all my sins washed away, right? And removed from me, and I will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's what the gospel promises. So now I'm no longer relying on myself to be good enough before God. Amen? But I'm relying on Christ. Family, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. This one period, simple thing. You're either relying on yourself and your merits to be reconciled to God, or you're relying on Christ, one or the other. That's why every, every world religion in and of itself is a, is a works-based system. It's always about what you can do. It's always about what you can do instead of what Christ has done. Are you with me? Okay. <clears throat> so then, we are to mourn and weep over our self-reliance. We're to mourn and weep over our sin, right? Right? This is only accomplished by the power of the Spirit through faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. When we come to Christ by repentance and faith, we denounce ourselves in brokenness over our sin. And we humble ourselves before God, confessing our sins and our profound offenses against the God of heaven. And in faith, we cast ourselves at His mercy through trusting what Christ has done for us not in any way how we have merited God's favor. Okay? This is this is what true repentance looks like. It's humble. It's broken. It's broken over what a mess it's made of its own life and it looks to Christ for healing and wholeness. If it's humble, it's not proud. It's not arrogant. It's not boasting. Right? Rather, we're coming to God with our head hung low, right? Remember those two guys that came and they were praying, Jesus said? And one was a tax collector, a wicked sinner, right? And the other was a Pharisee, right? Right? And the Pharisee gets down on his knees and he starts praying, oh God. Wait, I'm sorry. Oh God. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I thank you that I'm not like other men, right? Like this sinning tax collector over here, I pay my tithes, right? I mean, there's this Pharisee coming before God and making his case about how good he is before God. Who's he relying on? Himself, Himself, right? And then the, the tax collector comes in, right? Will not even lift his eyes toward heaven but beats his breast saying, Oh God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Right? Listen to Jesus' words. That man went down to his house justified. Why? Because he had the kind of faith that saves. What kind of faith is that? A humble, broken, self-denying faith. You see that? Yes, sir. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> kind of like, like he's talking to a uh, steel ceiling. Uh-huh. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Prayers aren't getting through, are they? <laughs> right? God opposes the proud. <laughs> he gives grace to the humble. Amen. Right? <clears throat> well, true faith relies solely on the merits of Christ. See that word denying there? Cross that out. I have figured out that that's a boo-boo embracing our own weakness and inability to earn god's favor okay think think about this with me family true faith relies solely on the merits of christ embracing our own weakness and inability to earn god's favor True faith says of itself, I'm a wretch. I am a sinner. True faith won't even lift its eyes toward heaven for shame. Are you with me? True faith beats his breast. He's saying, I'm unworthy. Right? You with me? He's broken. He's humbled. He's the opposite of proud. He's in brokenness. He has a contrite spirit. He's in contrition. He's on his knees. Are you with me? This is what true faith looks like. It realizes that it is unable to save itself. True faith says of itself, I am unworthy of the grace of God. True faith says of itself, I am unworthy of the blessing of God. This is why Paul says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Are you going to complain? Let me get this straight. You're going to complain about the situation you're in? Let me get this straight. You're going to come before a holy God and complain about the situation you're in. Hmm... Something doesn't seem right here. I sense an injustice here. Are you with me? If you got what you deserved, you would be the most miserable person in existence. Are you with me? And so will every man and woman who does not embrace Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's what death is, family. Death is utter misery. You know why it's utter misery? Because you get shut out from the good presence of God to bless. That's why. And there's nothing good in that place. It's a dark, empty, cold cavern. Jesus says of that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right? An ever-loathing of how you always tried to do it on your own. And you did it until it killed you. And then you stood before God and He pronounced on you the just sentence. You rejected His goodness. You rejected His, his provision for you to wash you and clean you and make you whole. You rejected His offer of eternal life, living in the glory of heaven, living eternally in His presence with joy and bliss. You rejected that offer because Jesus is the only way that we can get there. You with me? <clears throat> That's where the Pharisee going to wind up because he's relying on himself. And that broken, wicked tax collector, he goes down to his house justified. You with me? You see the difference between humble, broken, self-denying faith and proud, arrogant, boastful religion? <clears throat> well, Jesus... Uh, the gospel calls us to abandon self-reliance and to trust in Christ alone for justification and reconciliation to God. Luke 9:23, Jesus is saying, "If anyone wishes to come after me, let him what? Deny himself. Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me." You see, true faith is a faith of self-denial. It denies itself. It denies its own ability. It denies its own rights. What rights do you have? You are a slave bought out of death. The only right you have is to die. Are you with me? Matthew 18. And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, think about what Jesus is saying. He says, I want you to become like a child. Unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom. Well, what's his point? Well, he gives us that right in the context. The very next thing he says, whoever then humbles himself as this child. What's Jesus teaching about becoming like a child? Here's what it is. Humbling yourself before Him like a little child. Like one who's unable to care for himself. Like one who needs a protector and a provider. Right? And if we come to God like that, humble like a child, right? That's how we enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because true faith is humble even like a little child. Okay? Or how about James 4, 6-10? through 10? But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now look what James says here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. What's he saying? Repent. Right? Right? When he's saying hands, he's talking about doing deeds, actions, right? Cleanse your hands of sin. Stop doing what is wrong, right? That's what he's saying. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, right? What's he saying? He's calling, he's calling us to purify our hearts, right? He's calling us to change our heart on the inside. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. What are you trying to say, James? You want me to go around like some kind of a big frowning face, like Sean? <laughs> Is that what you want? Is that what you're telling me to do? You want me to be a grump the rest of my life? Is that it, like Sean? That's <laughs> kind of an inside joke. Sorry. <laughs> My wife got a fortune cookie one time, and uh, she thought it was perfect for me. No, you got it. Oh, I got it. I'm sorry. I got it. She kept it. She wanted to frame that dude. <laughs> Here's what it said: it said, smile when you're ready. <laughs> uh, uh, such profound wisdom from fortune cookies. be miserable mourn and weep let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom what do you mean James? humble yourselves that's what I mean that's what he's saying right? humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you why? because God is opposed to the proud You see some guy riding on his high horse? Let me tell you something. You just hold your breath and watch what happens. Let me tell you what Isaiah the prophet says. There's coming a day. Isaiah calls it the day of the Lord. You know what that day is like? He says, every high mountain will be made low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. It's what Isaiah says. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about everything that is in the world that has lifted itself up against the authority of God. And God is going to bring it down. You want to know how you come into the kingdom? You come lowly, broken, humble, denying your own self-abilities and not relying upon yourself, but upon Christ. Amen. In fact, the gospel call of self-denial is so great that Christ calls us to lose our own life to follow Him. In this, He means to say that His lordship and purpose and plan for our life supersedes our own purposes and plans. You see that? What does Jesus mean when He says to lose your life to follow Him? Right? Here's what he means. He means to say that his lordship and his purpose and his plan for our life supersedes our own purpose and our own plans. You know what it means? Guess what? There's a new captain on the ship. And it ain't you. And it ain't me. It's Jesus. Amen? Which means we no longer do what we want to do. We do what the master wants us to do. Amen? He means... For our life to take a whole new direction and for our plans to definitively change from our own sinful, self reliant direction of self fulfillment to a life of servanthood to Him as our Master and King. All right? Here's what He's saying He's saying we turn away from self, we stop living for ourselves, we stop following our own desires and plans and all these things, dreams we had of our life. You understand? Unless those dreams are consistent with Christ and His kingdom, He calls us to forsake those when we come to Him. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ as our Master and King. We became a slave of righteousness when we were freed from slavery to sin. You with me? Now we obey the Master. We no longer live for ourselves, but instead for Christ. Our lives are no, no longer belong to us, but rather to Christ, our Redeemer King, who bought and paid our ransom from death and delivered us into eternal life. Okay? Listen to this in the teaching of Jesus. He says, he was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, this is what the gospel ought to sound like in the church, family. Just like this. If anyone wishes to come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is it profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? I hear this thing ringing in my ear. Your best life today. You with me? Jesus says what what will it gain you what will it gain you if you gain the whole world? If you if everything becomes yours and you're the king of the world and you forfeit your soul what will it gain you? Answer? Oh. Zippo, death. That's what it will gain you? Hellfire. Right? Destruction. Right? The gospel is not a big long shopping list of things you get when you come to Christ. What you get when you come to Christ is Christ. And that's not what so many people are bargaining for. When Jesus came preaching the true gospel, you know what they did to him? They hung him on a cross they didn't like what he had to say. You know why? Because he was calling them all sinners. And he was telling them they had to turn away from themselves. And embrace him as their sufficient means to be reconciled to God. And the last thing that men and women want is a new captain of the ship. Right? They are hell bent to do their own thing. Right? I wonder how good a gospel would sell if you could make a whole new gospel and tell people they could have salvation and still do what they want. I suggest it be a bestseller. Your best life now. We'll end here with these few scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.14 Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. See what Paul's saying? Those of us who live, we no longer live for ourselves, right? But for him who died. We live for Jesus. We don't live for ourselves. How about Romans fourteen seven, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We belong to God. We are His possession, so we live for Him. Amen? about 1 Corinthians six seventeen and following? But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. You know what Paul was saying? You can't just live any way you want to live. And you can't just have sex with anybody you want to have sex with. Jesus is the Lord. You must live for Him. You cannot just go through your life doing whatever you want to do. Don't you realize? Your body belongs to Christ. That's what he's saying. Amen? He goes on to say in that passage, or a little earlier in that passage, he's saying, people that live in immorality, they don't inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they don't have the kind of faith that saves and is marked by a life of obedience. Amen? These teachings are not unclear in the Bible, family. They're crystal clear. This price of losing our life can occasionally cost us everything. I'd like to just end with this idea, okay? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And when you come to Christ... You get the free gift of salvation. But in coming to Christ, you must give your whole self to Him. That's how that works. In other words, in exchange for His free gift of righteousness and peace and joy forever, you must give back all that you are. You must become His possession. That's the gospel call, family. Shall we pray? God, our Father, I pray that you will enlighten our hearts to these truths, that you will cause us to see, as we read through the Scripture, God, these expressions, these forms of the Gospel. I pray that they would be deeply rooted in our hearts. I pray that we would be growing in a knowledge and an understanding of them, and that we'll have an ability, Lord, by your Spirit, to articulate these things to those around us who are lost, who we desperately long to see them be saved and to be released from the captivity of sin. And so, God, make us instruments of your peace. Make us instruments of your love and your joy that you hold out the hope of eternal life that you hold out in the gospel. Because of Jesus' holy cross, amen.